Hello, and welcome to The Scott Mize Show, a podcast focused on health, diet, bodybuilding, and philosophy. I interview experts, doctors, coaches, and N equals one case studies to answer your questions about improving health, achieving your best physique, and making sustainable progress. We'll cover topics from carnivore and ketogenic diets, to bodybuilding, to life philosophy, and everything in between. Enjoy the show. Are you looking to lose fat, gain muscle, or improve your health, or all of the above? Interested in working with me one-on-one? Stop spinning your wheels, because I offer personalized coaching where I can help you reach your goals, whether it be fat loss, muscle building, improving your health, or all of the above. I provide tailored nutrition, training, and supplementation advice, one or all of them together, with 24-7 ongoing support to help guide you every step of the way. You can email me at scott.mize at gmail.com, click the link in the description of this episode to schedule your free consult call to go over your goals, answer questions with no obligation. Let's take your physique or health journey to the next level. This episode is brought to you by LMNT Electrolytes. This month, we're switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP LMNT partners, including Carnivore Cast listeners. You can now receive this free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link, which is provided in the show notes or my Instagram link in bio. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash carnworkcast, all one word. And as I said, I'll include the link in the show notes. LMNT electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. And get yours today to help support the show. Thank you. Soon-to-be Dr. Milo Wolf is currently pursuing his PhD on the effects of range of motion on muscle hypertrophy and strength. Milo has guided individuals in their journey of getting bigger, stronger, and leaner for more than four years. He's a coach through Wolf Coaching and Stronger by Science. Milo has competed in both powerlifting and bodybuilding at a high level as a natural athlete. He puts out excellent free information on his Instagram and YouTube channel, as well as his podcast with Dr. Pack, Muscle, and Fuels. Welcome to the show, Milo. Thanks for having me. That was a very thorough introduction. Very impressive. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I'd love to start with um, your area of research. What first interested you in range of motion research and made you decide to pursue it? Yeah, 100%. So what interested me was towards the end of my undergraduate degree in sports science, I was actually working for Renaissance periodization. Um, I was doing some some smaller stuff like handling some of the social media, advertising some of the products, and eventually down the line, became a coaching assistant for Renaissance Periodization. Um, but yeah, so I was involved with RP and I'd gone to one of the seminars. I was following the information quite closely. And one thing that they started promoting around that time, I think, was Full Range of Motion. And they even created a brand around it, which was Team Full Range of Motion, which, yeah, it's a joke, but it, it's still a name. You know? <laughs> um, so they created Team Full ROM and there was a lot of interest around range of motion and full range of motion being best for hypertrophy. And that was kind of summarized at the time in a systematic review by Schoenfeld and colleagues in 2020. And looking at six studies, essentially what they found is that full range of motion was better for muscle growth than a partial range of motion. So going all the way down and all the way back up on every movement was best for hypertrophy. Although there was less data in the upper body, we had two studies only there. And so there was some, some uncertainty on that front, but overall it was acknowledged that full range of motion was the best. And so I was finishing up my undergrad and I was lifting with full range of motion all across the board. 
squats, curls, everything. And I was working for RP and I was thinking about next steps. And I thought eventually I probably wanted to do a PhD in sports science. So I spoke to a few people in the industry, in academia, and kind of informed myself of my options. And it turned out that one of my better options was to go straight from an undergrad degree into a PhD. And one of the topics that was kind of on my mind was range of motion. And I saw that very recently, actually, that systematic review I mentioned was published as I was applying for a PhD. And it was an interesting topic. And it was made easier by the fact that someone had just so handily reviewed every study on the topic for me. Um, and I was like, you know what? It does look that there's some questions remaining here that could be answered. And so I said, you know what? Fuck it. Let me just apply for a PhD on range of motion and go through a process. And that's what led me to doing the PhD on range of motion. Now, full disclosure, and this is something I do try and make public as much as possible. And to some people, this is a concern. I don't think it should be, but I'll, I'll make it public again anyways, is that Renaissance periodization did in fact give me um, a grant to carry out the PhD. Now, I think if you use your critical thinking, you might notice that the conclusions of a lot of my studies have been the contrary of what Renaissance periodization had been advocating for. Yeah. So unless they were looking to make a PR shift going from team full ROM to team partial ROM, I don't think uh, their grant influenced the findings very much. You know, it, it would be to a detriment. But, you know, I just like to advertise that uh, it was in fact funded in part by Renaissance periodization. Yeah, I, I, I think anyone who knows you well wouldn't question um, your, your bias and your uh, uh, scientific integrity in that way. Um, so, yeah, that's that's very honest of you to disclose. But... Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to jump into what is a length and partial um, for the audience who may not know that term or be familiar with it. Why use them? And then maybe what is a practical example of how you would perform them on one exercise? For sure. So I think the best example might just be a row. When you're doing a row, a full range of motion would involve fully letting your shoulder blades come all the way forward. So scapular protraction, letting your arms extend fully, letting your arms come all the way forward, and then rowing, let's say the cable or the barbell until it touches your chest or stomach and then coming back down. So going from a fully stressed position to a fully length, uh, shortened position and repeating, that's a full range of motion. A partial rep is obviously anything less than that. That could be going from halfway up to all the way up, from, from all the way down to halfway up. It could be a variety of things, right? A length and partial specifically refers to doing a partial repetition in the lengthened portion of the full range of motion. So when you think about any movement, like a row in this case, you can break it down into the lifting and lowering phase, which is really just synonymous to the shortening and lengthening phase, right? When you're lifting it, the primary agonists are shortening. When you're lowering it, they're lengthening. And so when you're done lowering the row, for example, that's when your back, your biceps, your rear delts are most lengthened, most stretched out. And then if you wanted to do a partial in the lengthened position, what you do, for example, is just lift it halfway up. So you'd be doing your whole exercise just in the lengthened half of that movement. Yep, which is kind of the opposite of how a lot of people perform <laughs> a lot of exercises. Um, and why why use them? What What's the benefit to doing lengthened partials? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few bodies of evidence where you find that lengthened training is probably just a good thing for muscle growth. So for example, we have about nine studies now comparing those partial reps, either in the shortened position, so like the top half of a row, 
versus the length and position, like the bottom half of a row. And what they find very consistently, when at least comparing partials to partials, is that doing partials in a lengthened position is likely just better for muscle growth than doing them in a shortened position. Now, the same applies to isometric contractions. So when you're talking about just contracting without changing muscle length, like for example, a wall sit, where you're just sitting, the length of your quads isn't changing. There's no range of motion because you're just sitting there. But when you compare isometric contractions like a wall sit at different muscle lengths, again, the same finding emerges where isometric contractions at lower muscle lengths are simply better for muscle growth than at shorter muscle lengths. There's about five studies on this. Now, you might ask, how does that inform us? Because I'm not talking about doing partials or asymmetrics. I'm talking about doing full range of motion or a partial. And that is a good point. We do only have four published studies and a fifth study that hasn't been published yet comparing length and partials to a full range of motion. Essentially, what these four or five studies have found, I'm going to include the fifth study that hasn't been published yet because it is by a group of authors that's done quite a few studies in this area now. And I do think it's worth including given just how novel the body of evidence is. But if you're more skeptical about unpublished findings, feel free to ignore it. What you find across those five studies is that four of those studies have found a benefit for muscle growth of doing length and partials over full range of motion. So the group doing length and partials saw more growth than the group doing full range of motion. In the final and fifth study by Workhausen colleagues, there was no difference. So to summarize, when you're comparing length and partials to full range of motion, there's not a single study where length and partials do worse for muscle growth, or where full range of motion does better. So at the very least, if you want to look at it from a sort of uh, betting perspective, at this stage, and it's, it's a very crude way of looking at it, there's an 80% chance, four out of five studies, that you're getting more growth with length and partials. And there's only 20% chance that you're getting the same growth. For the time being, it doesn't seem like there's much risk of you getting less growth by using length and partials. So that's kind of the lay of literature, and that's why I think it's worth using, uh, because you simply probably get more muscle growth. And that's ultimately what most people in the gym are at least somewhat after, or actually heavily after, in the case of competitive bodybuilders and the like. Yeah, yeah, great summary. Thank you. And um, can you talk a little bit more about your philosophies on training um, from back in the RP intern days to today. Range of motion is obviously something that you've evolved your thinking on, um, but what other areas have you um, evolved in terms of um, you know intensity, volume, things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So back in the RP days, I was definitely a proponent of full range of motion. Uh, I think that, that before I did my PhD, obviously. Um, and I was coaching people and in my own training, making sure that everyone was getting a full stretch, but also a full peak contracting. So a full lockout on a leg press, ideally. And this is something that, for example, Dr. Mike Isretel was advocating for back in the day, before all this evidence, where the emphasis was always mostly on the lengthened position. But there was still some emphasis placed on, hey, let's make sure we get a lockout because certain muscle fibers, certain motor units that aren't activated necessarily as much in other positions. So we want to make sure we also get that shortened position, that lockout, right? Since the PhD, that's definitely changed. Nowadays, I very much emphasize the lengthened position for muscle growth. Uh, there's caveats there. If someone, for example, has performance goals, like getting better as a powerlifter as well as growing muscle getting better as an athlete as well as growing muscle. All those things can kind of conflict. And so you don't only want to do lengthen work in those cases. But if your main goal is muscle growth, emphasizing the lengthen position via lengthen partials, lengthen supersets, exercises that are more challenging in the position, all that stuff can be a good idea. 
As far as volume and intensity and relative intensity go, a few things have changed. Nowadays, I think I acknowledge that periodizing volume and relative intensity in the way that is or used to be more promoted, I think, by Renaissance periodization, wherein throughout a mesocycle, volume goes up and relative intensity increases as well. So you go closer to failure every week, usually, or not every week, but over the course of a mesocycle, that does go up. I think those alterations over the course of a mesocycle are less well substantiated than I thought. I think it's a lot more speculative than people realize. I personally think that I see a case made for intro weeks where if you've been detrained, like if you had a deal week or if you like a very easy deal week, or if you had a couple weeks holiday, what have you, I think an intro week makes sense because we do see that the repeated bout effect does mean that after a few weeks of hard training, you can train pretty hard and not get excessively fatigued. But if you had a couple weeks off training, you probably don't want to go straight back into really hard training right away. And so having an easier training week to kind of ease you back into things initially makes sense. Equally, I think right before a deal week, so let's say you're training hard for six weeks and then on average taking a deal week on the seventh week, I think on that sixth week, I don't see a huge downside to pushing things a little bit harder because you'll have a full week to recover from additional training anyways. And so if by training a little bit harder or a little bit more, we can get more stimulus for muscle growth, we'll be recovering from that training anyways because we have a full week of easy training. So you don't see recovery timelines often extending past three or four days. So if you have a full week of recovery, you don't need to worry overly much about are you going to recover on time for week one again. So I do think there's a case for training a little bit harder on the week before deload. And I think there's a case for training a little bit easier on the week coming back from a deload or from a training cessation. But as far as otherwise periodizing volume or going closer to failure week to week, I'm not sure there's a strong case to be made there. I think it's very speculative. The most direct study we have is a study where participants were essentially assigned to either a default volume or their volumes were measured. Like they asked participants, hey, how much volume or how many sets a week did you do preview, sorry, prior to the study? And they essentially added 20% to that volume and looked at muscle growth afterwards. And what they saw was that actually taking into account their previous volume and increasing it slightly seem to lead to more muscle growth versus just giving people a default blanket volume uh, prescription. So that's the strongest evidence and pretty much the only direct evidence we have on the topic. And that's not even the most direct way of looking at the idea of this periodization style. It's uh, kind of taking it, okay, well, what if we increase volume relative to previous amounts? That is part of the periodization style. It's not the main thing. It's obviously in the periodization style, you would increase volume week to week, every week, week upon week and so forth. And so I think it's much less well substantiated than might appear. And I also think that based on some of the most recent data, A, super high volumes don't seem that compelling to me anymore. And by super high, I mean like much beyond like 15 or 20 cents a week per muscle group. And I think that based on some of the most recent data, training closer to failure on average makes a bit more sense than previously. So I think the traditional way the RP periodization model was recommended was that you started a mesocycle around four reps in reserve or so, maybe three, maybe five. And then you progressed all the way to say one rep in reserve or failure on the last week. I don't necessarily see a case for this. I think there's a few limitations. Number one, it makes tracking performance a little bit more challenging because if you're constantly changing reps in reserve, then you have to account for that. And then accuracy of reps in reserve comes in, like whether or not you're accurate every week. Now, I don't think that's a huge concern. We actually conducted a review on this where people are pretty accurate at gauging rest and reserve. But it's a concern, nevertheless, especially for people who feel like they're less accurate. 
But I think more importantly, I think that training to failure is probably a good thing for muscle growth on the whole. Not every set, right? But I think that there's benefits to be had there. And by only training to failure on the last week, potentially, and exclusively training to failure on the last week, that might be excessive, first of all. Like training every set to failure might reduce performance across the whole session. Like if you take the first exercise of the pull session to failure, the remaining exercises are going to take a big hit, right? Because you're very fatigued and training to failure is more fatiguing. And we do have some evidence that overall volume load for how well you perform across the whole session does matter for muscle growth. So if we're trained yeah. to failure for every set of every exercise for a whole session for a whole week, the volume load across each session, each session and that whole week is going to take a hit. And whether or not that's a good thing for muscle growth, I think it's probably a bad thing. So what I would rather do is I would try and preserve volume load across the session as follows. Generally, on the first set of an exercise, I would aim for about two to three reps in reserve. And then on the last set of an exercise, I would aim for typically failure, ideally, but just last set. And usually I would aim for failure more readily on later exercises within a session for the same reason. Because if you go to failure too early in a session, it's going to impact volume load a lot. And that might be a negative thing. We don't know for sure yet, but it seems to be the case based on some of the rest time data. Um, now, I think that's a pretty good approach. So starting the first set around two or three of some reserve and then going gradually closer to failure with each set and having the last set go to failure. And that's sort of based on the most recent meta-analysis by Robinson and colleagues where they found that as you went closer and closer to failure, more muscle growth was seen per set. And that was kind of a non-linear relationship. So I think on the volume front, I don't see quite a case for as high of a volume anymore, nor do I necessarily see a case for like large manipulation of volume intramed cycle. On the reps and reserve front or relative intensity front, I don't see a huge case for periodization. Again, large manipulation um, within the men's cycle. I think it's a pretty constant session to session and week to week. On the range of motion front, I think that length and partials are likely a good idea if you want to maximize muscle growth. And so a full range of motion might actually be worse muscle growth. I think those are the main ways in which my training has changed. I think honestly, like a lot of their stuff is still very up to date. Like whether we're talking about rest times where it was always like the checklist may be a bit excessive. I think you can just go by performance because performance proxies for all those things already. Like the rest time checklist where like, oh, are you psychologically ready or breath, et cetera. I think it can be useful if you're super analytical, but equally you could just go by, well, do I feel ready to do a set that's about as good as the last one? If yes, you're ready to go. It's a much simpler question to ask yourself versus yeah. like five questions. Um, but like rest times are solid, frequency was generally solid, although I think there might be for slightly frequencies than they recommended, although they've always given a range, right? Like they've always said like a two or four times a week. So frequency-wise, rest time-wise, a lot of the fundamentals are still really solid, but I think like range of motion-wise, volume-wise, volume manipulation-wise, um, relative intensity-wise, and sort of periodization of relative intensity, that's where I've kind of diverged a little bit, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that overview. That makes a ton of sense. And um, I uh, trained very strictly following uh, RP principles for for years, uh, multiple years. And one thing that never made sense to me, similar to you, like I, I totally got the idea of like an intro week and maybe bumping up your volume and relative intensity from that week to the second week. But one thing I never understood was like driving yourself into a deload. Um, like it, it just always, when like things are clicking and you're training well, I would much rather, um, like try to maintain that, um, momentum and like productive weeks for a longer period of time, rather than like, 
I have to get to a deload by the fourth or fifth week and I have to push myself into that. They don't necessarily advocate that, but um, oftentimes the way they implement changes results in that. Um, so, A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And this is where that recent study by Coleman and colleagues comes in. I don't think based on this most recent data that deloads should be taken too frequently. And I think they should be more reactive than proactive in nature. Basically, what they did in the study by Coleman and colleagues, uh, uh, Coleman's actually a friend of mine, um, they compared two groups. One group trained quite hard for nine weeks straight without deloading at all. And the other group trained quite hard for four weeks, but then took a four week off training. So not even training at all. So that's quite different from how you deload usually. And then trained hard for four weeks again. They assessed a variety of muscle growth outcomes. They trained both the upper and lower body, but only the lower body training was part of the study itself. So they did their employee training on separate days and without supervision. And basically what they found is that the group who trained for nine weeks straight generally just had slightly better outcomes than the group that yielded. And these people were training hard, right? They were doing 20 sets a week to failure, likely. Like it's it's hard to say for sure that it was failure, but like knowing the conditions of that lab, I've been there and I'm about to be there again in two days. Uh, it's pretty, they're pretty on point. Um, so they trained very hard, 20 sets a week of hard quad training, close to failure. That's harder than most people train. Yeah. And yet, even on a time scale of nine weeks, not deloading was superior to deloading for both muscle hypertrophy and strength, but more convincingly for strength and muscle hypertrophy. And I think the fact that it was more beneficial not to deload for strength and for hypertrophy probably comes down to the fact that they didn't train at all for a week where there is such a thing with strength where if you take a full week off training and don't practice a movement at all, you might feel a bit rusty coming back. And they did express that during the sort of subjective um, feedback component of the study where they said, well, taking a full week off kind of made me feel rusty. And you do see that when they came back from that deload, the participants in that deload group, they did get more soreness. They felt a bit less motivated than the participants in the not deload group. And so anecdotally, I do kind of see that as well. When I train very consistently, week in, week out, day in, day out, recovery is rarely an issue unless like my volume t- goes crazy, uh, especially with the repeat about effect. And having that consistency of training is a very welcome thing for both strength improvements, like kind of having momentum to your training and driving that a little bit, but also in terms of motivation, like uh, taking a week of easier training or off training entirely. Man, it's kind of hard to get back to training afterwards. Personally. Yeah. Definitely. So uh, I I do see the case now for deloads happening more so like every six to 12 weeks versus every like three to six weeks. I think that's yeah. more so the case. And I think it'd be more reactive and potentially more so aligning with when your lifestyle isn't conducive to hard training. Whether, for example, you have exam season coming up and you know for a fact you'll be very stressed, potentially get less sleep and stuff like that. And your recovery from training will be shot. Or if you're on holidays and you know for a fact that the training environment you have is like, a resistance band and your body weight and you're like oh yeah. I, can, I can try and make it work but also on the holiday they kind of want to enjoy it and it's not going to work very well yeah i think or those are the sick. cases where exactly exactly and those are the cases where i would recommend a deal nowadays more so than oh every four weeks we deload that is the way yeah yeah and i think i forget if it was in your video on this or your your podcast with dr pack i think you also mentioned that in the continuous group that didn't deload in that coleman study there was some measure of either psychological or physical fatigue that was actually less in the continuous group. Yeah, correct. So they, they did a few things. So they had a questionnaire um, that they gave to participants all throughout the study. And they also asked them for feedback at the end of the study, like kind of just like off the script almost, off the record. Um, 
what they found was that after the deload week and the deload group, they had lower motivation to train. And they also reported higher muscle soreness from training, which makes sense because they didn't train for a week, so they were accustomed to it again. And the lower motivation, as I said, when you don't train hard for a week, it's kind of hard to get back into it. And then actually, interestingly enough, after the study, they asked participants, oh, how do you feel? Like, even the participants in the non-deload group who just train hard for nine weeks straight, how do you feel? Like, do you feel like you'll get back to the gym right away? Do you feel pretty fatigued? Do you feel like you need to get a week off, two weeks off? And for the most part, apparently, participants in the non-deload group kind of just said, oh, I took a couple of days off and now I'm back to training. Like, they didn't need a full deal week. And in fact, oftentimes, deal weeks are convenient and practical. And I think that's that's almost a sufficient reason to use them that way, like taking a full week off, because like it's easier that way as far as like programming and everything goes. But equally, you could just take two to four days off and probably get largely the same effect. And it might be convenient in some cases where, you know, you go away on holidays on Wednesday and you come back on Sunday. You might still choose to train hard on Monday, Tuesday, if you know for a fact that if you're not training for five days, you'll recover just fine. And you might even get a bit more hypertrophy that way. Yeah, I think also for the vast um, majority of people, there are phases in their life where they can really focus on training. And, you know, if you have three, three months or five months in a year where you can really dedicate yourself to the gym and then you know other periods of year you're having a kid or you're starting a new job or something like that, it doesn't make sense to like, quote unquote, waste a lot of that like three to five month period that you can be productive on deloads. Um, you want to like accumulate as much productive training as you can. Um, so, you know, it's not always like thinking about these things in isolation. Obviously, there's a lot of other life factors that happen too. 100%. And I think that one other important thing is if you train like two or three days a week and you don't have much time to train in the first place and your lifestyle isn't like super stressful or you, you sleep terribly or what have you, there's a good chance you'll never need to do it. Like yeah. if these participants were training 20 sets a week to failure on multiple muscle groups and after nine weeks, they still need, didn't need to deload. If you're training like two or three days a week, you may never need to deload and you may actually never benefit from a deload and you may be best off just training consistently. And this kind of goes to the general population's idea of working out, where it's like, oh, you know, you got to be consistent. You just got to be in there week in, week out. And they don't, like, they don't even know what deloads are. And they still make gains, you know? And I think that if your training volume and intensity isn't sufficiently high for it to even warrant a deload, you're probably better off without them. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think the general, the general public perspective is, is really valuable. Um, and I believe you studied with Dr. James Steele. Um, maybe he's one of your advisors. Is that correct? Yeah, he was one of my supervisors. Correct. Yeah, I, I'm dating myself here a bit, but I, I um, had uh, communicated with him as, as far as 10 years ago on, on my training um, because I actually started out in, in weightlifting using like a super slow single set to failure approach. I did it for too long. I was too dogmatic about it. Uh, but I think it was actually a very healthy way to get introduced in terms of learning technique and intensity. Um, so I was curious if you've ever like trained to him in that fashion. Yeah, so we we don't, it's a weird one. We don't really train together. Um, he He's awesome. Like, I, I don't have anything bad to say about him. Um, I think that a lot of people who come up in the HIT space oftentimes, and fuck me, in a lot of spaces, most spaces, will have a pretty strong bias and um, stick with it 
for too long. But he's pretty solid. Like we've never trained together, but I've seen some of the videos of him training. And actually, he has been. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm about to say this. Hey, he'd be fine with it. So whatever. Um, he has been a participant in some of my studies, and so I've seen him train. And uh, oh god, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a video of him train, but it's he's intense. You yeah, know, he yeah. embodies he embodies that HIT one sets all out. Yeah, mentality. he's awesome. Exactly. So yeah, no, never trained with him in that sense, but I would be interested to try it at some point and see how yeah. it goes. I know he's a bit of a minimalist, um, but yeah, he's 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 definitely uh, someone I looked up to a lot. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about the meta by Dr. Zach Robinson. I know you're pretty well versed in it um, on training intensity. It's interesting. I was listening to um, Dr. Robinson on a podcast this weekend um, that Steve Hall hosted, kind of a roundtable with Dr. Mike and Eric Helms. And um, first of all, I think he's just a, such a phenomenal researcher, incredibly honest and forthcoming about limitations and things like that. And one thing they were talking about is that um, the effect um, of higher training intensities really increasing exponentially um, your gains, that, that relationship starts to fall apart when you look at longer training interventions um, training interventions um, with males versus females, more advanced lifters, higher volumes, higher frequencies. Um, and a lot of the data they're pulling from just necessarily with how training studies is, is on lower volumes, training two to three times a week. I guess, how do you think about that um, as, as a potential limitation of, of that meta? For sure. So first of all, if anyone's read the meta-analysis from front to back and looked at a lot of the subgroup analyses that are in the supplementary uh, materials, it's a lot to get through. Um, so I think focusing mostly on the primary findings, the ones we have more data for, is worth doing. I had some conversations with, uh, not actually a doctor yet, neither am I, by the way. So in case you ever call me doctor, just beware. I'm still okay. waiting to defend my thesis. Um, but um, he's awesome, first of all. But I have had some conversations with him about his findings and all that stuff. Um, essentially, with higher volumes, what you see, like you can run meta-regressions, where essentially you see how the relationship between two variables changes as you change another variable, right? So in this case, how does the relationship between how close to failure you train and muscle hypertrophy change as the amount of total volume you do changes? And the shape of the relationship like the general gist of the relationship between how close to failure you train and hypertrophy does remain the same as you go to higher and higher volumes. However, the magnitude of difference decreases. So essentially, if you go, say, from doing five sets a week to doing 15 sets a week, whether you train to failure matters less if you do 15 sets a week versus five sets a week. And that makes sense, right? Because if you're only doing five sets a week, then every set counts a lot because you don't get that many sets, that many exposures. Whereas with 15 sets, you can make up to an extent for, quote unquote, a lack of intensity with just greater volumes. And so I think there is likely still a benefit to be had from going closer to failure with higher volumes, but there is some uncertainty around that. I think that when you're talking about someone training for six days a week, as Dr. Helms pointed out in that uh, podcast, I do think it's going to be potentially different. But equally, part of me whenever you're trying to limit the generalizability of a relatively well-established principle or a relatively well-established 
uh, trend that seems to apply across a good amount of circumstances. I think that for you to say, well, I have some reservations about this scenario and that scenario, I do think you need a pretty strong rationale. Because just because we have an absence of evidence in this scenario doesn't mean that it won't generalize to that scenario. If you have a pretty strong rationale, and that rationale needs to be pretty strong, because we're talking about your mechanistic rationale versus empirical data. Now, yes, the empirical data isn't directly pertinent to the circumstances you're talking about, in this case, training six days a week, but it is likely still going to generalize versus like a set of mechanistic assumptions that you've built into your uh, theory as to why it wouldn't generalize. And so I'm always a bit skeptical of excessive uh, conserva conservative thinking when it comes to those circumstances. But I think that in this case, we don't have much data on like five or six days a week of training, like yeah. 20 plus sets. So I think there is a case to be made for that. Um, but as I said, if you do see that going up in volume, at least within the confines of the volumes that have been studied in the studies within this meta-analysis, you see that the relationship does still hold its shape, but just decreases in magnitude. It may be that when you get to super high volumes, say like 20 plus sets, 25 plus sets, there is no longer an effect. Yeah. But then the question becomes, would you rather do 25 plus sets, not a failure, or 15 sets to failure, or what have you? You know, like it becomes different in that sense. But I do think that if you do see that the relationship holds up as you increase volume at least to a decent level, there's a good chance that it'll still hold its shape, maybe to a lesser extent, but it also holds its shape into higher and higher volumes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. I think that's an excellent point. Um, and I think a lot of it is also just uh, a lack of, um, a lack of power in, in that there aren't uh, that many studies that, that follow those different areas of more advanced list lifters, higher volumes, higher frequencies. hundred um, percent. And that's always a consideration when you're talking about meta regressions or subgroup analyses, unless you're talking about a meta regression, like I read a paper recently, for example, by Paul Swinton, where he looked at the relationship between intensity or percentage artifacts and adaptations in a variety of things like strength, agility, speed, power. And like in that meta regression, he included 275 studies, I think. And yeah, in that case, like, even if there's some subgroup analyses, you have enough data on at hand that you can be reasonably confident in the findings. But if you're talking about meta-analysis with like, a typical meta-analysis in sports science has like six to 20 studies, maybe this one had like 28, I think, for a or something. And when you're talking about a number of studies like that, and you're talking about subgroup analyses or meta-regressions that only include a subgroup of those studies included, yeah, you're going to be talking about a more limited amount of confidence. The same thing goes for in my meta-analysis when we compared length and partials to range of motion. At the time, there were only three or four studies, actually. And so, yeah, that analysis on its own wouldn't have been very compelling, in my opinion. When you took it in light of the broader landscape of the evidence with the comparisons of isometric contractions to different muscle lengths and partial reps to different muscle lengths and consistently finding that length and work is better, then that's worth something in the context of that. And I think the same applies here where the subgroup analysis may not be super well powered due to a lack of studies, but when you consider it in the context of things, specifically in the context of the overall analysis, the better regression between how close to failure you train and hypertrophy, I do think it lets credence to the overall idea that even when you're doing higher sets, it's probably still better. Maybe the effect is smaller, but I do think it's probably still better. Yeah. That makes sense. So just a, a few more questions. Um, so one, I wanted to get your take on, and this both pertains to length and partials as well as full range of motion training, but I wanted to get your, your thoughts on continuous reps versus ones where you rest briefly, like at a walkout point. 
Um, like obviously if you're doing a leg press, for instance, and you rest briefly at the top with your legs extended or partially extended, you can get more reps, you can get more work done, you can get more quote unquote volume. Um, but if you keep, if you're doing length and partial, obviously that's not really an option. Um, or even if you're doing full range of motion, but you're just not really pausing at all. What are you, what are your thoughts on the relative efficacy of, of those two approaches? And um, like, what are some of the trade-offs? For sure. That's a very good question. Partly because a lot of people have a lot of opinions on this and there's a lot of ways you can look at it mechanistically and partly because we just don't know. So it's, it's fun to hypothesize about it. Now, the reason I say we just don't know is we don't really have any empirical evidence on this. Like we don't have any studies looking at, oh, one group did all their sets and just stopped the set. You know, they were limited to one second rest between reps all the time. And if they fail a rep, that was it. Versus like, oh, one group was just told, eh, rest for as long as you need between reps and we'll see who grows more on a set per set basis. Now, mechanistically, you can look at it like this if you'd want to. Um, you can look at it from a, an effective reps perspective. I don't think that's the right way to look at it. But technically, you could say, well, look, by resting every now and then, when I get to the top of a leg press rep, taking a few breaths, towards the end of a set, every rep is maximally effective. So I get a lot of effective reps in, right? Because by that point in the set, all my motor units are being recruited. All of them are experiencing plenty of tension. You know, you should be getting a lot of effective reps. And if you think that effective reps are the only thing that matters for hypertrophy, and you subscribe to the idea that only the last five reps or whatever before the set ends, matters for hypertrophy only those last five reps before failure really matter then you might see it as a good thing right you get more effective reps great thing now my hunch with all this is that the stimulus to fatigue ratio to borrow a term from Mike Zipto, of just doing a continuous set with no rest between reps versus a set with rest between reps is essentially the same i think that you get more stimulus by and large, from doing more reps and extending a set, essentially. But you also get more fatigue. I think that it's essentially a version of a cluster or rest pause set. And this is where I think the most direct evidence we have, empirical evidence on hypertrophy, comes in, in the rest pause and cluster set literature. Basically, what they find is that compared to straight sets, there's not really a benefit on a volume-equated basis of using cluster sets or rest pause sets. I do think that taking a few breaths at the top of each rep, for example, in leg press, especially towards the end of a set, kind of resembles rest pause or uh, cluster set approaches. And so I think those findings should generalize, at least to the extent that I don't expect any differences. Like, if, especially if finding is null, that is to say, there's no difference between a cluster set versus a straight set for hypertrophy. And I don't think cluster sets are that distinct from just taking a few breaths top of every rep then I think the finding that, eh, probably no major difference in hypertrophy probably applies here too. I can see how mechanistically there'd be a bit more stimulus from doing additional reps and getting a bit more volume mode, getting reps that are close to failure, right? But equally, I can see how that would be more fatiguing. For example, we have literature on training closer to failure being more fatiguing. Um, so, and also anecdotally, it's more fatiguing to do a lot of reps close to failure than that method. Like I find that if I do a set of leg press where I take a few breaths every rep, that set takes like three minutes, first of all. Yeah. Terrible awful. experience. <laughs> awful. But second of all, like it's a lot more fatiguing. And like a few sets of that leave me crushed. Whereas I could do a set of continuous reps. And after that set, like I'd be like, whoa, I, I could feel the quads and everything. But I'm not crushed for minutes and minutes usually. Um, 
So yeah, I don't think it really matters. I think what matters probably most in this situation is finding something that you prefer and finding something that you can track and be consistent with for the most part. I don't think tracking is as important as a lot of fitness pros nowadays make it seem. I think that if you're reasonably close to failure over time, you train reasonably within the right parameters of volume, et cetera, et cetera, you'll make progress whether or not you track it, right? Your muscle isn't like, oh shit, did he write that last set down in the notebook or not? <laughs> like it's growing regardless. So I think that the biggest thing is just preference, tracking it somewhat, being relatively consistent so you can assess changes in performance and uh, readiness to train, that sort of stuff. But I don't think it's a huge deal either way. And I think you can grow muscle just fine either way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great answer. I, um, I'll i provide my my anecdote here. Um, I know. So for me, my my leg strength is, is, is a problem. Like I am too strong. And it often like I'm scared to do hack spots because I will inevitably get really close to an injury um, if I'm doing a set that is really hard. Like I have to put four plates aside on the Cybex hack spot to even get close to failure. And so I'm always trying to find ways to use less weight, use less weight, use less weight. And I find personally it way less fatiguing physically and neurologically to take a set to failure if I'm doing partials, length and partials on the hack. Um, like I can just, you know, I keep going, I keep going and all of a sudden, oh, failure. I, I hit it, it's done. Versus like if I'm doing full reps, I'm resting at the top, I'm like, okay, I can get one more. And I keep doing that. Like that is just so much fatigue for me. Um, and I have to use more load. So for me, I, I, at least on that exercise, I greatly prefer the continuous reps. A hundred percent. I think within the context of length and partials, I very much prefer that as well. Um, I actually prefer the feel of doing a set of length and partials to failure versus a set of four range of motion to failure, especially when that four range of motion is coupled with those pauses we mentioned. Like thinking back on the hard sets of hack squat or leg press I had to do when I was using full range of motion, it's a lot less pleasant of an experience when you're taking a few seconds between each rep and the set takes like three minutes versus a set of like 45 seconds and 15 reps of length and partials, actually quite pleasant. And I do agree with you that like after a set, I'm a lot less uh, wrecked with length and partials. I just feel like I feel it in all the right places where it's worth. Like I feel it. I did a set of leg press, uh, basically to failure this morning, like partials. Like after the set, I was just like, I, all I feel right now is quad and glute and maybe a little bit of breath. But like compared to doing a full range of motion set with breaks between each rep, I feel so much better and I just feel it in the right places. Yeah. So but what else was, here's my N equals one <laughs> perceptual feedback, whether or not that relates to whether or not it's much better for muscle growth is unclear. But, yeah. You know, take it as you will. Yeah, I'm glad we can confirmation bias validate each other. <laughs> I love it. It's all, we, it's all we need. It's what a lot of people do in the industry. So yeah. Um, cool. And then another thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, coming from um, the RP background, I know you've trained also um, with um, N1, CASM. Um, what are your thoughts on like single arm slash quote unquote more precise back training versus doing a lot of even with length and partials, um, dual arm, more compound movements? Yeah. So I think all the limitations and benefits of single arm training apply here as well, which is that for some people, in some cases, it can be less time efficient or about as time efficient. So there might be a slight hit to time efficiency in terms of purely just 
if you're doing both arms, it takes a bit less time per set, um, assuming rest time is the same. Um, as far as specifically the N1 style like backlog goes, I think that, to be honest, we just don't really know yet. I can see a mechanistic rationale for it, but I don't hold that in super high regard because we don't have much empirical evidence yet, right? So I think that if you have the time, the proclivity, the equipment to do it, I don't see harm in doing it, and I see potentially a slight benefit. I do think the one harm I see in it, potentially, is that when someone's been doing a movement for a long time, like I've been doing underhand pulldowns for half as long as I've been alive, basically. So I know exactly how strong I am. I have a pretty good gauge of what numbers I've been able to hit. And so I have a very good benchmark of what would constitute progress and what would constitute a hard session. And for people who struggle to train particularly hard or who are driven by progress in numbers and that sort of stuff, I think switching movements excessively and for an insufficiently compelling reason in this case, like I think that you can certainly use it if you think that it's a strong rationale, you know, that the that um, motion involves more lengthening of the lats, for example, like in the case of an N1 pull down or pull around. Um, but I think that unless there's a sufficiently compelling reason most of the time, I would typically prefer sticking to movements that I have been doing for a long time as a benchmark. And for people who don't train particularly hard, changing movements a lot is a good way to just keep them from training hard if they don't have a benchmark and if they really push, like struggle to push themselves hard. You know, they're doing pull downs for a few weeks. They manage to get to some numbers that are not to failure because it takes them months to get to failure. But if they get reasonably close to failure, we at least know what to shoot for. And if you see their numbers going down, you can be like, what are you doing? Whereas if they're starting a move for the first time, but they don't know what's close to failure, and they can easily fool themselves into not training sufficiently close to failure. So it's a few considerations there, but I don't think it makes a huge difference. I can see that I can mystic rationale for it, but until we have more empirical evidence for it, I'm not too fast and I'm not going to go scream from it about it from the rooftops. Yeah. Yeah. For me, at least I'm, I'm fortunate in that back is the one body part where no matter how much volume or what exercises I use, it just seems to always grow and always be good for me. So I don't need to get super precise. I don't need to um, worry about it. I mean, all my back training is done after all my arm and delt training on that day. <laughs> um, and so it's it's like really a low priority for me. So for me, it doesn't make sense in terms of the time trade-off and switching exercises trade-off. 100%. And I think that there's kind of a few components as well to the N1 style exercises. There's some components I'm more amenable to agreeing with and some components I'm less amenable to agreeing with. Um, for example, when it comes to the idea that we want to lengthen the lap more or certain divisions of the lap more, I'm amenable to that. I think that's a good idea on principle based on literature we have. With regards to, for example, exercise choices that are really strongly predicated on neuromechanical matching, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think that especially when you're training close to failure and with the limitations of modeling different muscle groups like force curves, etc., I would rather keep that as a relatively minor priority on the excess selection list versus like making sure that the muscle group's being lengthened and is being challenged in that length of position. But I think that certain, as I said, certain aspects are a bit more important to me, like the muscle lengthening versus the neuromechanical matching foot. Yep. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, th I think they put out a ton of fantastic information and content in general. Um, and uh, one kind of fun question I wanted to ask you is, um, you mentioned, you know, one thing that you've um, changed your thinking on a little bit is slightly higher frequencies. Um, what do you think of kind of the Menno Henselman style, train every body part every day? And second part of that is using combo sets where rather than doing a straight set and resting full rest interval between every set of leg curls, you do one set of leg curls, one set of chin-ups, one set of squats, and then go back um, with, with less rest to potentially save time. Sure. So I'll touch on the combo set first. I hadn't ever heard that term. I'd heard of uh, antagonistic paired supersets or just like basically circuit training in some cases. Um, I think they're a great idea as long as performance doesn't really suffer. I think in the case of antagonistic paired supersets, where you, for example, superset a leg extension with a leg curl, essentially two motions that are contrary or opposite to each other. I think in those cases, it's actually been shown to improve performance sometimes. And I think that mostly applies to movements where there is not basically any overlap and they're relatively more single joint in nature. But it's also been sort of shown somewhat in the case of the bench in the row exercise. Um, so as long as performance doesn't take a hit, I don't see a big issue. And in fact, besides performance studies, we have about four of those, I think. Uh, we have some chronic studies on muscle growth itself. And thus far, there's not really a negative effect of supersetting different exercises, but you do save a shit ton of time. And so personally, the checklist goes, can I superset these two exercises without causing a decrement in performance? If yes, it's totally fine for muscle growth. I think that that doesn't apply to certain exercises like supersetting a squat with much can be quite challenging yeah. like you're going to take a performance hit or just wind up having to rest so as long as you would if you did the, the straight sets yeah i think so, part of the benefit menno speaks about is um like even if you were to take the full rest you would otherwise need if you're doing one set of each exercise you're getting way more rest for any given exercise um yeah, that's interesting. I do think there is diminishing returns for a given muscle group, though. Like, much past three or four minutes for my quads, for example, it's not really my quads that are resting at that point. It's my breathing. Right? Like, I'm, my heart rate's still 120 after a set of squats after, like, three minutes. So it's not really about the quads. And so if I do a set of calf raises, yeah, sure, my quads are getting extra rest. But it wasn't really my quads that were an issue anyways. It was more so just overall fatigue, not necessarily the quads. And... I can see it. I, I think it makes sense. Equally, there's a lot of, like, same with antagonistic paired supersets, but there's a lot of practical considerations where certain exercises aren't practical to superset, let alone in a busy gym. So, just some practical stuff there. With regards to high frequency, I was actually a very early adopter of the Menno Henselman's recommendations on, like, full body training. I was doing some of that stuff, like, in 2017 um, when I read about it. And yeah, I mean, looking at the data, looking at, for example, the meta-analysis by Greg Knuckles in-house, not published, um, on strong by science, on training frequency for muscle hypertrophy, I do think higher frequencies, all else being equal, are probably going to be better for muscle growth. But I think that there's kind of like a past like three, four, five times a week, I don't think there's much of an initial benefit. Um, and I do think there is some recovery consideration to be had there. Like... There's an efficiency consideration and a recovery consideration. The efficiency consideration goes that if I wanted to train my quads every day, I would need to warm up quads or for lower body every single day. That's a lot of time just spent warming up. 
the recovery consideration would be if I do a movement for my lower body that's loaded, like that has my spine loaded every day, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a major problem, but I could see it being a problem. So the way I've got my training set up now, for example, is that I'm training six days a week, but only three or four of those have any major like spinal loading, right? So like I'll have an RDL on day one, maybe like a squat on day three, maybe like a hack squat and leg curl on day five. Like on day six, I might have like a, I wouldn't do a back extension, but let's say a back extension. So like only four of those days would have some spinal loading. And same goes for upper body. Like I'll have sort of one day with upper body compounds, next day with upper body isolation. Upper body compounds, upper body isolation. We're kind of switching around a little bit. So there's at least some um, some leeway for the sort of stimulus recovery adaptation curve to take place. Because otherwise, if you're training everything every day, I can't say it's going to be an issue. I don't think we have the evidence to support that. But on a principled basis, I'm, I would rather someone approach it that way versus just being like, okay, I'm going to train chest, back, quads, hamstrings, glutes, everything, every single day. And that winds up making sessions A, super long, B, make every session kind of the same, spend a lot of time warming up. So I prefer a slightly more strategic approach, but I, I think that higher frequencies of like three to five times a week are perfectly fine and probably preferable for most muscle groups. So that's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, you, you've competed in powerlifting, you've competed in bodybuilding. What are seems like you're doing a little bit of mix of both in your training now. What are your goals in terms of your own fitness um, moving ahead? For sure. So I was doing a little bit of squatting, deadlifting, benching, overhead pressing for a while now. Um, I kind of got burnt out of the squatting and deadlifting because they're just heavy lifts, like very heavy. And I have to load up like four to six plates per side uh, for both movements. And it's, it's just a long time. And... Uh, I got some recurring like lower back pain, discomfort, whatever on that lifts. And I was like, to be honest, I don't care that much. Like if I'm, if I was pulling uh, like close to 600 for five reps, five to eight reps, uh, I'm good with that. I don't necessarily need to see that go up much more. I'm not that numbers driven. Um, but I do. And so I've stopped kind of squatting and lifting that heavy, but I'm doing like RDLs, that's it, RDLs, hack squats, um, the Smith machine, like partial squats, that sort of stuff. Um, and that's been really enjoyable. But then I do enjoy the bench press and the overhead press at the moment. I haven't been posting about it much, but I hit a 220 or a 100 kilogram overhead press recently for the first time. And that was like the heaviest I hit before that was 200 pounds for a rep, like a few weeks wow. before that. So like it was kind of just a out of the blue, eh, just overhead press, I guess. But I've been enjoying the overhead press. I've been enjoying the bench. So I'm kind of training those a little bit for strength, but still being, to be honest, quite hypertrophy specific. Like uh, I do a top single of like our P8 or whatever. And then I do back, back down sets of five to eight reps. So that one set of one isn't very good for hypertrophy, but those back down sets of five to eight are at least pretty good for hypertrophy. Are they ideal? Like is the bench press and the standing overhead press ideal for hypertrophy? Nah, but I'm also doing it to enjoy it. So I'll make that trade off here. And then the rest of my training is perfectly like hypertrophy orientated. Like I don't, I get a variety of rep ranges in. I don't try and be ultra specific to the bench and overhead press. I'm just doing those because I enjoy them and I still want to see those progress. Um, but the rest of my training is across a variety of rep ranges, five to 30 reps for the most part, although you could go higher than that. And that's actually something else I kind of don't take issue with, with RP's, uh, approach. Interesting. But like, so the data we have on growing from different intensities shows for the most part that we can grow without BFR or occlusion bands from intensities between 30 and 85% of your max. 
And if you look at the most recent data on sort of repetitions to failure to percentage or max relationship, like how many reps can you do is, for example, 30% of your max versus 50%. You see that with 30% of your max, you can get like 50 reps or even a bit more than that. So you could do sets of like 50 reps and still grow muscle optimally, roughly, provided you're taking them to failure. Now, it's going to be harder taking them to failure, but I think that if you truly believed in the idea that combining a variety of rep ranges is best for hypertrophy, you might want to consider including some ultra-high rep work. Like I'm talking 30 to 50 reps, not just capping it at 30. And there is some data on combining a variety of rep ranges being better for hypertrophy. And this I kind of say this as a um, result of the in-house meta-analysis that Zach Robinson of Data Driven Strength performed, where essentially he looked at does combining different rep ranges lead to more hypertrophy versus just doing one. And it seems like there's a small but appreciable effect potentially of using a variety of rep ranges. And so if you think that's the case, then you may want to have some high rep work beyond 30 reps in your program. Is that enjoyable? No. Do I do it? No. But do I think it's potentially worth doing? <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, most of my training is very hypertrophy orientated and I don't have any plans of competing in powerlifting anytime soon. I will probably compete in bodybuilding again in like 2025, maybe. Um, I stepped on stage at a mostly conditioned, but not quite there, 200 pounds last time. Wow. Um, I'm 6'2", so that's like, if anyone's impressed, just to keep in mind, I'm 6'2", it's not that impressive. Still large. <laughs> um, yeah, something like that. Um, and so ideally, would add on like 5 or 10 pounds by then. That'd be cool. But like, I'll have that four years off season. That'd be cool. But We'll see. That's kind of my my aim for the time being is get mostly get more jacked overall and also get strong at the bench and over press. Very cool. Well, Milo, thank you so much for your time today. I I feel like I could chat to you for another hour or two, but um, this has been super informative and really, really interesting. Um, Where can folks find you if they want to connect with you or work with you? And I'll, of course, have uh, links in the description of the podcast as well. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. It's been an honor coming on. Um, what I'd say is nowadays, I'm most active on YouTube. So if you search Wolf Coaching on YouTube, you'll find my most in-depth opinions on topics there comfortably. Where I'm most known is probably Instagram. And you can find me on Instagram at Wolf Coach. So that's my last name, Wolf and Coach, underscore. Um, if you want to find my research output, you can find that at ResearchGate Milo Wolf. So if you just type that into Google, you'll find my output. And then finally, for my coaching and anything else, really, you can find that at wolfcoaching.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to the show. You can find The Scott My Show on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave a comment, like, review, or share the podcast with your friends or followers. It helps more people find the show.